2: If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together.
1: As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time.
3: Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons.
2: You found the Gravity Leadership Podcast once again. This is Matt Tebby joined by Ben and Christy Penley. What up, chums? What up? Hey. It's good to uh, it's good to good to see you guys. Yeah.
3: Good I, to see you guys. You both Good waited you for guys. me
2: for 30 minutes today cuz I had other things going on and I really appreciate mm-hmm. your gracious patience. Yeah. We just sat here
3: on this call like <laughs> literally staring at each other. We were like,
2: "What are we gonna do?" Yeah. yeah. With our time. Don't no worries. I'm when here. Matt I'm here. Is ca- no. Oh. It was
1: Listeners such a relief do not relief when believe you joined.
3: that. It was such a
1: relief. Anybody else have like a to-do list that's like a mile long? You want to uh,
2: see mine? Christy, this makes for great uh, podcasting. Oh my goodness. This makes for great that podcasting. Is
1: ginormous. This
2: is just from Mine's the all, last two days.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh my, I'm Mine's so not sorry. quite as tactile. I take it all Mine's back.
3: digital. Mine's digital, Christy. Okay. And my mine has been long since two thousand seven. So <laughs> I just one up Matt there. <laughs>
0: Jeez.
2: <laughs> uh, um, okay. You know, this is interesting. We're doing an intro to this podcast today, and neither of Which you neither of you we were, were on this yet. podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, we should you say too all by yourself. We
3: just finished up a series. Mm-hmm. We should just say this too. We finished up a series on our book, um, last week where we talked about the conclusion of our book, and that was like eight no, that was ten episodes, didn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. We did ten episodes. We did yeah. ten episodes on the book and we're kinda now we're back to um, I guess your regularly scheduled programming maybe, <laughs> where we do, you know, we do some more kind of interviews with various people who've, uh, written things. So anyway, yeah. So that's this, this one is uh, back to your regularly scheduled programming, but it is an interview that neither Christy or I were here for. I think okay. I was on vacation. Yeah. I don't know what Christy's excuse is, but um, I'm going to use that good same one.
1: one. That was a good one. I you think were on, I was vacation? on vacation too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I was in Michigan. I'll make it up.
2: I don't know. Uh, she doesn't. <laughs> I know I wasn't in Hawaii.
0: I've been to Michigan. <laughs> I don't know.
2: She has been to Michigan recently. It's thoroughly That's possible. True. Yeah. Um, this is, This is. We recorded this one though back in July, I think. Yeah. I'm you. Pretty sure I was on vacation. Yeah, you were. You. You both missed a really good one. This. This is. Uh, so well, tell us about it. Well, who I'm, is it? I'm not going to tell you. Here's here's what's going to happen. We're going to play a little game. Okay. Uh, this guy's name is Eric Minton. And he wrote a book oh. uh, called it's, it's Not You, It's Everything, and you have to guess what it's about. Christy, go. It's Not You, It's Everything. Okay.
1: It's Not You, It's Everything, a book about how to break up when you're in junior high. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: that would actually be pretty good. Y- you know what? Uh, true you true know story. What?
2: It's not you, it's everything. True story. <laughs> I actually broke up with a girl once in junior high, and my line was, Heather... I need to break up with you because I think I like you too much. Oh wow, nice! And you know what her response was? She goes, "That doesn't. That doesn't make any sense." <laughs> yeah, good for Heather. And I, I think I did. Uh, you know what any good thirteen-year-old would do—well-meaning uh, and desperate thirteen-year-old do when backed into oh. a corner—I uh, gaslit her. <laughs> oh, I just for said. Heather. I mean, I just said yes. It does. Yes, it does. She's like, no, it doesn't. I was like, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, it makes perfect sense goodness. in my head, so, so how could it
3: not make sense to someone else? So that's what yeah. I think
2: of. This book is not about that, uh, okay. Christy, but that maybe we should write
3: that book. I think, so here's uh, here's my guess about what the book is about. It's, uh, it's not you, it's everything. A Multiverse Adventure. Oh. Uh, a Multiverse Adventure, that's it.
2: Just any, any garden, your garden variety it's multiverse a adventure. Yeah. you know. Well, there's a lot of them out There now. are you know, so many. That,
3: the, the Marvel movie with the multiverse, and then the Spider-Man has a multiverse, yep. and then Everything Everywhere All at Once multiverse, which I loved, and Christy, did we talk about this last time? I think we talked about this last <laughs> not
1: time. Not on the podcast, not but the podcast. I'm not sure I'm going to take your movie mm. suggestions anymore. I but. don't,
3: I don't, yeah. I just, like, this is... I don't know what to do with this, Christy. Well, it's confidence because I absolutely loved this movie, and I, I don't, I don't know
2: how I feel about you now. Ah! I'm Just kidding. All right, it's not like I you. Need to it's break everything. Up with you. Yeah, Are you yeah, breaking with <laughs> me? I can put you two in a breakout room, and I can continue this intro <laughs> if you need. So,
3: no. Here is my real guess. I would assume. I love the title, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's not you. It's everything. Mm-hmm. I would assume that this book is about how. The feelings that you might be having about uh, you—you are deconstructing, or you're discontent, or you're like aff- disgusted or offended, and you're like, "What in the world is going on? Is this all in my head? Is there something wrong with me?" And the book is saying, "No, there's nothing wrong mm. with you. The fact that you are upset means there's something right with you, mm. because here's what's wrong with everything."
2: Well, then- that's my Ooh, guess. That's good. All right, so here's the. Here's the subtitle, Okay, oh, uh, and you can, you, we can test your hypothesis against the subtitle. It's not you, it's everything. Mm-hmm. What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. This, this, All right. I yeah, like it. this book is a psychological, cultural, theological analysis about mm. um, how our culture and society is set up to breed the kinds of anxiety and depression and fear and loneliness mm-hmm. that we're experiencing and how we're basically in a system that's producing the results that the system is intended to create. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a lot of people, including the three of us, who end up blaming ourselves for being, for, in, uh, for instance, discontented or anxious mm-hmm. when uh, that's actually a natural byproduct of the system we've created and uh, the, so this book is, and I tell Eric this in the interview. This book is uh, does a few things that are really hard to do. One, it's brilliant. Two, it brings together three fields of inquiry and integrates them. Four yeah. is easy to understand, and five is hysterical. It's really wow. funny. Eric is Ooh, really funny no, guy. So. Yeah. Uh, no mean task. I mean, that's a, that's, uh, this is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. And so, anyway, I was really happy to just to have him on myself, you know, when he and I were chatting. <laughs> I wanted to hog Eric. I was hogging yeah, him.
3: Nobody butting in there, asking questions, being interested in stuff. Beat it.
2: It's probably <laughs> better you guys didn't show up. I just
3: would have muted you. Super interesting questions. Anywho. Uh, yeah. Anyway,
2: well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm into it. I like it. All right. Well, we should, like uh, it. this is great. Jump into this interview. Uh, Ben, you want to talk? You want to just give a quick plug for our merch? Oh yeah, we got merch, guys!
1: Oh, guys, it's awesome. (laughs) If
3: you have, if you're not, so here's the benefits of getting on our email list. If you were on our email list, you would already know about the merch. And if you had joined our book launch club, it's too late now.
2: But if you had (laughs) joined. I'm getting kind of mean Wait, for some reason. I don't know why. The, the, uh, the cryon. Anyway, if, you, if you were watching us on yeah. YouTube, the cryon would say Suggers. Yeah. "suckers." Suckers. <laughs> I almost said it, and I was like, "Oh, that's just a little too mean." Jeez.
3: All right. I don't mean. I don't mean to be mean. I don't know why I'm being mean. Um, I haven't had anything to eat today, so I might be a little hangry. You're hangry. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, we've got merch. And uh, on our email, we've announced this to our email list already. Mm-hmm. They know about our merch. But if you go to gravityleadership.com slash store, we have some cool stuff there. And I, you know, we, we've thought of the idea of having like, well, what we have is stickers and T-shirts and mugs mm-hmm. and maybe some more stuff later. Um, and they're not just, they don't just have like the Gravity logo on them. We've thought about like doing merch before, but... You know, it was always felt like, well, I don't know, just -hmm. just our logo. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So in honor of our new book that launched, Having the Mind of Christ, which we just finished up the series about that, we asked our friend Joel Rocky, um, and there's a link to his Instagram if you want to have him design anything for you. Um, He's actually also the uh, liturgical arts coordinator for our church, uh, the church that Matt and I co-lead with um, Spencer. And um, anyway, we asked him to draw up. Draw up a couple cartoons for some of the axioms, and um, this guy's got like this really fun whimsical art style. And um, he drew some cartoons that represent four of the axioms, and you can get those little whimsical cartoons on T-shirts and mugs and stickers. Mm-hmm. So if you go to gravityleadership.com/store, you can check it all out. They're really they're really fun. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. So.
1: Uh, my birthday is coming up so you can oh, tell Paul to Christy. get me one of those mm. nice you know, yeah send me a send me a sticker or right. a mug and we have Paul.
3: a we have we have a very uh good discount for gravity team members that I'll make sure Pauls knows about <laughs> oh. so, yeah yeah so, All right. yeah i get that so, discount right. too yeah well you're i mean i thought we thought, we hmm. talked about it as a team without you for <laughs> Extensively over text and we decided to allow you to have it, Matt. Is this so, what you were doing when I was on the interview
2: with Eric? You were scheming. We were, yeah,
3: we were like mm-hmm. we were like, you know what, we need to have a meeting with Alan Matt. We need to talk <laughs> He's about busy this. for at least forty minutes. Let's do we it. We need to talk about whether he can get the discount. Code. <laughs> All right. No, well, it's cool. It's fun. They well, are. They're fun. They're fun designs. Go check it out. Gravityleadership.com slash store. I'm And check out this interview.
2: Yeah, I'm prepared to share Eric with everyone else now. I had to it took me 7 or 8 minutes here the intro to get to the uh, place yeah, where it, I feel like just, but I'm um, okay ready you to you let okay you all this? in you on sure, this com- Yep, I'm I'm a okay, big I'm right. a big boy. I put on my but, so generous
3: of you. Mm-hmm. Listeners, enjoy. <laughs>
2: Eric Minton joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. He's a writer, ordained Baptist minister, and psychotherapist who specializes in marriage and family therapy. He practices and lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, and does coaching and consultation for pastors, nonprofit leaders, business people, institutions, helping them foster better ways of living, working, and serving together. His writing has appeared in Sojourners, G's Magazine, Baptist News Global, and Red Letter Christians. And today we're talking about his latest writing, uh, at least to my knowledge, his first book, it's not you, it's everything what our pain reveals about the anxious pursuit of the good life. Eric, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks Matt. really happy to be here.
2: Yeah yeah, it's good to have you. Um, I was telling you before we hit record that I was unprepared to like your book as much as I did. Uh, and and I, I I shared a little bit that it's because of how you tell your story uh, as an ordained Baptist minister, who becomes a psychotherapist in light of larger stories of your sort of religious world crumbling and also the the culture you live in, America, um and how that has contributed to some of the suffering and pain that you and others experience. Let me just start our our conversation off by asking you, like, how did you how did the the need to write this book? Where did that come from for you?
4: Well, uh, I'm a fundamentally anxious person uh, by nature, and when I was working uh, early on as a, a pastor in my first gig at a seminary, I just started feeling like I wasn't doing enough, uh, and I got this sense that, oh, I should be building my brand. Uh, I was probably like 27 or 28. And I'd come out of, I went to a Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And so I had come out of this community of people where it was like, hey, if you could become Rob Bell in about 15 or 20 minutes, I think we should all do that. Uh, so, uh, you know, immediately it's like, hey, if we could all of us write these kind of best selling books for Zondervan and uh, develop mega churches, but like cool ones that aren't angry. And, um, you know, really if we could just kind of become famous for Jesus that would be ideal and that was not ever something uh, my friends and I would say out loud Uh, but it was this sort of like internal idea that that's how you knew that you had done something worthwhile is that you had made it uh, or that you had arrived and so I started writing out of that kind of place of saying Mm like oh okay like yeah like I don't actually feel like the work that I'm doing at the current church that I'm partnering with is doing enough like, I don't feel like I'm I'm seeing enough progress, which is always numerical growth. And I don't think that I'm really doing enough as a pastor to justify some of the ways that I get to just spend all of my free time reading books and taking people to coffee. Uh, <laughs> and so I just started writing because, again, like that's my move. When I become anxious, I then perform all the yeah, time. yeah, And so uh, it's a little wonder then that during uh, the – global pandemic and end of the world that I decided to run a marathon and write a book. Um, Uh. It's pretty on, it's pretty on brand for me. Uh, And so I don't recommend either one of those two things, but um, I'm saying that, yeah, like, so I think the initial impulse is probably always, uh, negative for me mm-hmm. to want to produce. Yeah. But I think that at the end of the day, one of those things that with this book in particular, it was helpful in trying to encapsulate so many different components of my lived experience as a person that had always informed the ways that I started writing, however anxiously they began, and the ways that I had attempted to uh, kind of operate as a pastor. And then the ways that I began, my my wife has been a therapist our whole time. And so she she went to Fuller School of Psychology while I was there getting an MDiv. And so having seen the kind of work that she was doing then and throughout our time, even when I was working for churches, I just found myself over and over thinking, that sounds way more interesting. Mm. Uh, So at that point, I got the opportunity because um, my acquisition and later total book editor, Valerie, is a saint that she contacted me out of the blue and said, Hey, did you ever, we're putting together this new press with Fortress. Uh, did you ever think about pitching a book idea? And I thought, uh, yes, for my whole life. So uh, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> are, do you have the right email address though? It's kind of my question because I'm not a famous person. So, um, you know, yeah. And so then it was saying, uh, is there a way to take a lot of what I've been experiencing living through working with in church and, and, you know, psychotherapy context and finding a way to make that, reasonably uh, entertaining and engaging for people. And so that was kind of the goal was to try to bring all these kind of disparate threads of my life together. And so I'm grateful people are reading it, but it was really just about me. So I just needed it to exist.
2: Yeah. We can keep this about you if you want okay, thanks. to yeah. increase your comfortability.
4: I, I tell everybody in therapy, it's like, you know, I know that you're, you've got some things to work on here, but this is about me. So can you get better so that I feel better as a therapist? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, right. It's I, very I, effective work I do. <laughs>
2: The people who come to you actually don't really care how they get better or why. Uh, it's just about
4: you. It's about my anxiety.
2: Thanks. (laughs) You use a lot of, use a lot of words there. I think that are part of the nomenclature of the Christian culture in America, words like fame, platform, (laughs) uh, brand, um, reach, right. Um, you know, having a, having an email address that has your last name as a domain name. So, um, where can you unpack that a bit for us? Where did you how did it occur to you, or where did you begin to ask questions about is this how what's the cost this is having upon us?
4: Uh, oh gosh, uh, that is that's a really way, uh, excellent way of framing that question. I think, and I, it's because I'm not a good person, Matt. Um, that if I had been more successful at being a brand, I wouldn't be sitting here, dude. Um, if I had been more successful at accruing Instagram followers or Twitter followers, or uh, having the New York times return any of my emails, despite the fact that that seems like the very worst thing that can happen to you is have them publishing any of your work. But uh, aside from all of those things, if I had actually been better at this, I wouldn't be here. Like I wouldn't have written this book. I don't think I would have asked any of these questions. So for me, it's the fact that I was a failure at it that then probably because I have my own angst and passive aggressivity and internal judgment mm. that I think, Oh, something must be wrong with the system. Right. <laughs> Cause yeah. I, I clearly it didn't, it didn't pick me. Right. Um, but I think underneath that in the process of, of going through those kinds of experiences and then having my own experience with something that I later learned to call postpartum depression for dads uh, when my son was born
0: mm.
4: that I realized that, Oh gosh, so much of this internal narrative, that I have within me that's kind of pushing me into greater productivity is destroying me. Like it's killing my relationships Mm. with other people. It's destroying my relationship with my spouse and later my son. It's changing the ways that I talk to my friends or I don't, or it's changing the ways that I interact with the divine or uh, church congregations. And it, it kind of discolors everything around me. And so I think once I was able to, notice what was happening to me Uh, I I then just started asking is this normal like is this a sort of thing that I should be paying attention to and then talking to more and more people who began saying like no no no, like I'm actually like when we all slow down long enough I'm also really anxious and I feel down about these things all the time and even though I have way more Twitter followers than you Eric I feel the same way Mm -hmm. and so um I had a good friend of mine who, when I was, I was putting the book together and he was reading along with me, he was like, Eric, I need you to keep talking about how living in this world is like trying to make friends in a Black Friday sale, because I don't think yeah. I've ever quite heard it put that way. And I feel like that encapsulates so many things for us. So mm. for me, it, it started as this process of, uh, I'm not very good at becoming a famous person for Jesus. And then it sort of expanded out from that of saying like, oh, well, like what else is going on that causes me to ask those sorts of questions that would tell me that that's a successful thing to do and spend my time on? And then it was, oh, interesting. Like people have had this connection to productivity, uh, wealth and inequality and this kind of like baseline narrative of I'm a good person who's blessed by the divine because I am financially healthy and successful. And then I started reading Max Weber, and I thought, oh man, he was onto it in the turn of the century. Um, and then reading through all of this sort of literature about what it has, what capitalism has meant for so many of us, even unacknowledged for so many of us. I know you all were talking about that a lot on your podcast, which I love that part of the process really illuminated a lot of pieces for me that, that helped me kind of get language around what I was experiencing as an individual person.
2: Yeah. A couple of things you name, I just want to highlight just because they're, uh, significant for me and hopefully for our listeners. The first is the severe mercy that you couldn't quite hit the Rob Bell rung on the ladder.
4: Hey, no offense to Rob Bell, I'm still a huge fan, and I would sure. love to be him. I'm happy sure. to replace him at any time.
2: Yeah, we'll let him know since he okay. talks to us all the time. All Thanks. Right, that's, yeah, this helpful. Uh, but the severe mercy of failing at the at the test that would kill you, right? The the if if we succeed in this sort of uh, what you call the market god. Uh, race, you know, if we actually succeed in that, it actually is our own destruction. So there's this mercy that, this mercy of failure that leads you then to figure out, okay, what's wrong with me. But the second thing I think was is precious, and this is what most people I, I haven't heard most people make this, um, make this connection. Eric is that um you, you talk about sort of this prevailing like anxious depression self-recrimination self-loathing of like i guess i'm just not uh, a badass enough for jesus that i can't build this brand but but you actually then go out larger and say well how did i become the kind of person that thought being a badass for jesus was something to give my life to and and you mentioned right at the end of what you were saying there max weber capitalism and I know now we're getting into the place on the map where it says there be dragons. Like You, you can critique almost anything in America but capitalism. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Would you, would you give us uh, your first, I don't know, three or four chapters in the book, you really hammer on this. But would you give us a little bite-sized preview of what was it that you discovered about this economic system we live in that has actually spiritually malforming shapes, shaping in our life?
4: Oh, that's a good framing. Uh, for me, it honestly was uh, spending time. I, I live in, and I, or I identify still as an ordained Baptist minister only because I love getting a rise out of people. But at the same time, it, it's also because I came out of a tradition of being Baptist that's very different than the Baptist life that gets a lot of news coverage right now.
2: Well, I, uh, I think and, you should yeah. say ordained Southern Baptist ministry, ah, Yeah, Really but, get people going.
4: I know, but I'm not Southern Baptist. And so I think that's the part. So I'm not American oh, Baptist see. and I'm not Southern Baptist. I'm this weird kind of splinter group called Cooperative Baptist, which is a hilarious name in and of, in oh. and of itself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm, I'm part of this uh, network of Baptists that were uh, an offshoot that when there was this thing in the Southern Baptist Convention called the Conservative Resurgence or the Hostile Takeover, depending upon your perspective on things, um, that there's a group of folks that that. that said like they were a little bit more progressive than that community, heavy emphasis on little, but they were a little bit more progressive than the conservative resurgence and so they formed their own group called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is passive aggressive in nature. Uh, and I think it just, that really imputes all the way down. But um, so that's the Baptist community that I came out of. It, yeah. Yes, like I attended, went to, participated in Southern Baptist summer camps and things connected to Lifeway Christian Resources in Nashville. I have a lot of connections there, a lot of friends that are still part of those networks. But for me, I was never. A Southern Baptist minister, I was always kind of this cooperative Baptist thing. Yeah. But aside from all of that, the interesting parts of that is that despite the fact that I was part of these conservative networks and these moderate to even sometimes more progressive Baptist networks, that I would find that the wealthiest people in the congregation always dictated terms theologically to what the church mm-hmm. did. And so for me, even as a, a young pastor myself, who was working mostly with college students and, and middle schoolers, I found very quickly that the things that I could talk about with them were acceptable insofar as the people who wrote the biggest checks are okay with them. And then having, and then wondering, are other people having this experience? And spoilers, they are. And so having a friend of mine who works at a very progressive Baptist community tell me something that just still to this day boggles my mind. And they're an open and affirming. They, they welcome LGBTQ plus folks to all areas of ministerial and congregational life in that community. And it's a beautiful expression of that. Uh, but for my friend, he said, you know, the only reason we're able to do this is because our wealthiest congregants on board. Mm. And so for me, that is the thing underneath all of these other things that tells me, oh, if you can write a rather large check, you can dictate terms to almost anybody. And I think we're seeing this in terms of our Supreme Court rulings. I think we're seeing this in terms of our politics for the last, you know, 25 or 30 years. I think we're seeing it and have been seeing it since the beginning of, and the rise of American evangelicalism. And so once I started asking that question of like, oh, is this true for anybody else? And then, helpfully, Princeton historian Kevin Cruz has been really effective in -hmm. his book One Nation Under God and helping us see that around um, FDR's kind of work at reinstalling the American economy and getting America back to work again, that there was this entire crew of wealthy businessmen who partnered with evangelical and largely Baptist pastors to put a kibosh on this kind of progressive, almost democratic socialism that FDR was using to get us back off the off the mat there. So for me, I, this very illuminating work, and again, Kristen Dumay, lots of people are making these connections, but for yep. me, it was helpful to kind of draw out that like economic component to why people are asking these kinds of theological questions.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And your book does a great job, I think, of, of putting this on the shelf that those of us, most of us, can reach. I mean, we read Max Weber, we read uh, like a Philip Goodchild, or other people that have done all this theology of money. It can yeah. just get so uh, clogged. Like it's just, I don't know. It feels like we have we need a syllabus and a and a glossary and like all kinds of things just to to make sense of it all. But, but what's I think so compelling and important about your work is that you do it with humor and you do it with story. And you take these vast tomes. I mean, I keep looking up the books you're referencing, and I'm like, "Gosh, how does he have 80 bucks to buy that book?" But then I, I, I look at it, it's like 600 pages, and you summarize it in a paragraph, Eric, and it makes sense to me. Like, which is a gift, a gift to the church and for us. Um, I, I, all right, moving, moving then towards, how did you get from I'm, I'm anxious and depressed, and not sure I want to be a Christian anymore. Something is wrong with me. Two, actually, all this stuff I'm experiencing says more about the world I live in than me. Like, how did you get to my pain? Isn't I've done something wrong? My pain is I'm living in a jacked up system that isn't conducive to flourishing humanity.
4: Uh, first of all, I think having really solid and bottomless. I'm probably getting emotional bottomlessly. Um, what's the word I want? Just um, unrelentingly stubborn relationships with people who care about me, no matter what mm. um, that for me was mm-hmm. the kind of linchpin for a lot of this was growing up with grandparents who kept me afloat when I didn't really want to be and meeting a spouse who had the ability to know me from our earliest days and kind of continue to see these versions of me as a gift or interesting, or would always ask good questions and would always say yes, and maybe we should think about this thing. Uh, And then meeting uh, a kid who uh, smells like me and has my same penchant for Mm. scatological humor and, uh, who asks like really fascinating questions about the way the world works without fear that the answers are going to be bad for him eternally and currently,
5: yeah. uh,
4: those kinds of, and, and having a, a pretty decent therapist myself and, um, you know, really all of these humans that seemed to care about me, no matter how unsuccessful I continually was at so mm. many ver- at so many things, uh, really gave me this sense that like, oh, you know, what is it about this? that has gotten into me that all of these people who really benefit and would greatly benefit from me being far better at many of the jobs that I've been doing, they seem to care about me anyway. Yeah. And so then I'm, I'm sitting there asking myself like, okay, like on the other side of really wanting to die pretty consistently for about a year, uh, then think and, and not then thinking to myself, like, Oh my word, uh, do other people have this kind of thing happen to them? And then, going and and working in therapy and and having someone introduce me to the work of a psychologist in nashville who is a a great friend and uh, just a really helpful guide through all of this Uh, his name's bruce rogers vaughn and he wrote this book um caring for souls in a neoliberal age which again Mm -hmm. is a little bit of an intimidating title but I find it so helpful because what he argues in several of his earlier research articles that led to the creation of his book, and one has the most kick-ass title I think I've ever heard, it's called Depression as Political Resistance, which – oh, my word. If there's anything to get you out of bed in the morning, it's that. Um, so that's also uh, – sidebar, that's the na- new name of my cover band. Um, so, you know, But anyway – uh, which, again, like an indie folk band named Depressionist yeah. Political Resistance, oh, that's yeah. really, really on point. But aside from all of that, Bruce's work is a gift. And so what he argues is saying that when we look at the sociological and economic factors that shape most of our lives in America and in the West, the industrialized West, that we would start to say that the way that this kind of society or civilization functions can only produce depression and anxiety in people. Yes. And so then when we start from that component of saying, well, perhaps these things are natural responses to a world out of control rather than something being like a loose hose in your brain. So then it's saying, okay, so if it's not an individualized problem, it's a sociological problem. And then there are all these great people who say like, oh, from a biological and anthropological perspective, depression and anxiety have more of a kind of a social or acute response to stress that have less to do with your brain chemistry and far more to do with your environmental surroundings. Yes. And so for us, like, that was kind of the seedbed for for me then thinking, like, oh, interesting. Like, what if, like, people cared about us differently? Or what if people continued to doggedly care about us despite our lack of productivity or success or fame? And what does that do to us? And so it's amazing how much quickly we get better when we provide social solutions to things like depression and anxiety, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than providing pharmacolo- always pharmacological solutions for individualized treatment <laughs> plans. Um, so for me, that was kind of the seedbed for asking more of these larger questions.
5: Hi, I'm Deb from Ormond Beach, Florida. One of the best gifts that I received for my journey through a gravity leadership cohort was a new perspective on flourishing in life and in ministry. I didn't realize how much of my discipleship was formed by call-out culture. My whole orientation was toward calling out what was wrong or sinful in the world, in my own life, and in the Church. But gravity helped me see that Christ was always calling people in toward life and flourishing and my cohort came to feel kind of like a community garden. We got to practice calling each other in to a deeper awareness of God's life, of his goodness and his love, and how it was bearing fruit in our lives. So if you're looking for a safe space to grow in your life with God and to practice your gardening skills in the life of others, I hope you'll check out the Gravity Leadership Academy.
3: To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com/slash Academy.
2: Eric, I just want to reflect back like your answer to how how you then went from blaming yourself for being, you know, a B minus pastor. Oh, that's a high grade yeah. To uh, all right, well, I'm I'm grading on a curve here, man. You know, like (laughs) it's relative, relatively speaking. Uh to diagnosing that the system is sick was People who transgressed the logic of a market economy in your life, who, who, who refused to treat you as unprofitable or, um, you know, last year's, you know, last year's style or write, write you off because you could not enhance or, um, you wouldn't join up and you could gig together and hustle and do something more than you could together but actually were loyal to you and committed to you not because of what you could produce or achieve, uh, but just because they they actually genuinely wanted to be committed to you which is a that is transgressive in and in, in through the logic that I think mammon operates in in our in our country so that's that's beautiful man what a testimony to this alternative system that your book in the second half, uh, I think advocates for, which is creating, uh, a more just, more, um, human way of, of living together. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. Uh, And and Matt, you've done a far better job of encapsulating all that than I, so I really appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that that's one of the things that, it's funny to talk about it in this way, but transgressive is not a word that I would have probably used for people engaging in radical acts of love and, and trustworthiness and solidarity with me. But I, it, you know, it's it's so fascinating how much that has become the again the transgressive or um, under like this kind of revolutionary ethic underneath all these other things. Um, so yes. for for myself, uh, <laughs> one of the things that I think then kind of shapes the the next move of that is understanding that there are whole frameworks within psychotherapy and particularly family therapy that have just been so revolutionary for gosh, like, you know, almost a hundred years at this point, but they've fallen by the wayside because of lots of other things. And I want to just spend 30 minutes talking to you about the for-profit healthcare system, but I'm not going to do (laughs) that. But even the ways that that for-profit healthcare system works to truncate the kind of psychotherapy you get from the person you spend behind closed doors for 50 minutes, once a week is remarkable. And so for us, like one of the things before that kind of market mandated um, process to deciding which treatments are evidence based and which ones aren't, we used to have people asking really, really fascinating questions about what happens with families and what happens with individuals when you start asking really, really good questions about so many things and you try to get as many people in the room as possible. And so for myself, one of the pillars of that was this uh, framework of of family therapy called um, new contextual or contextual family therapy. And then later it's become restoration therapy at this point. But its argument is that at the core, humans enter the world, not owing things to people, but being owed things. And those two things are love and trustworthiness from the people who decided to bring them into the world. And so for me, that then The way that it's worked in my own life, in in my own therapy, and the work that I do with people I spend time with at my job, the way that it shaped my family, in so many ways, I've seen so much growth and change. And it begins not from a deficit mindset that I enter the world being covered in this kind of original sin of constantly owing people this debt and needing to work it off. It's like this theological student debt that I get because I'm a kid that I entered the world. I know I'm a bad person. I know I owe people a lot of money. I better make a return on this investment that everybody's put into me, that everybody's given me. And it's just this like thing that hangs on our necks forever. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody enshrined that as a theological disposition and says, you know, God loves you, but like kind of because God like is forced to and God's pretty disappointed with you from the moment that your head crowns in your mom, that like God is like, kind of woefully bummed out by your existence. And so the way that you kind of get on this God, this this father's good graces is by like apologizing for that for the rest of your life Mm. and working to make this God famous. And so for me, like knowing that if a parent came in with that kind of narrative of saying like, you know, my kid's life is about my glory, my power, my prestige, how people talk about me immediately, I want to ask questions about like, hey, do you ever hit your kid? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, right. or I want to call the authorities. <clears throat> and so for myself as a therapist, then I, I began wondering, okay, so if the very worst parents that I spend time with would never say these things out loud yes. Yes. and would never do these sorts of things, then why is it we spend so much time worshiping a God that that's all we can talk about? Uh, and so then I, it, it's this full circle experience of saying like, oh, maybe all these things fit together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I, I think the integrative work of your book, that is cultural analysis, bringing, I think, some great insights from the therapeutic world and doing, um, I don't know if you'd say this, but I'm, I'm going to say it, doing um, deep theology. Um, I think what emerges is the unintended but explicit projection of our own pathologies onto God. Like we, like we have, we have a culture that's sick that, and I was thinking Bowen family systems as I thought about what you were doing, yeah. this, this whole thing, like this system is creating kids that are reacting to the illness of the system. And so you, if you want to fix the kids, you got to fix the system. You got to change, you got to change mom and dad to change the kid. Um, but but what we, what we end up doing is we end up then projecting our own pathologies and antipathies back onto God. And as I was reading your book, I'm thinking of these entire theological streams, entire systematic theologies that are less a reflection of who God is, and more an indication of how sick we are. And and I, and your book doesn't go explicitly down that path, but you lay all of it out, Eric, and a um, erudite, but also easily accessible way uh, that was really helpful for me. Helped me make sense of a lot of my intuitions that sometimes I feel a bit guilty for having these intuitions. Like we need, we need to give ourselves, we need to give each other permission to say, yeah, that's a pretty craptastic view of God. You know, that maybe, maybe Jesus reveals a God better than that.
4: Mm. You know, Matt, and I think that that's the, that's the, like, if I had a way of, putting a Yelp review on the internet. That's the one, right? It's, I just want people to ask more interesting questions of their gods, whatever they might be, and of their parents. And for me, uh, one of the things that that really sticks out to the way that you're talking about that is the way that, um, you know, we're unable to really have those kinds of conversations in Christian spaces because of this undercurrent of of fear that's motivated by our self-interest it's that like, oh, and because if we get down to it, the reason we don't want to doubt is because we'll be expulsed from communities that provide us support and solidarity. And we don't want to doubt because we'll be expulsed for eternity into an outcome mm-hmm. that we're less interested in, in happening to us, which is like being murdered forever, I guess. Yeah. So over, f- and over, for, over and over. Over and over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's mm-hmm. just, just do it again. Do it again. Um, and so for me, like, That really, really prevents a lot of interesting and helpful things happening. And so, again, when people come into the office and and see us for therapy, one of the things that has to happen is that sometimes, even when we're going back into somebody's family of origin experience and we're asking them about who raised them or what values and systems they identified as being important to their families or how they talked about any number of things or if they got the impression that their parents enjoyed being their parents or these kinds of questions, it's funny how quickly people will become defensive even when they've described experiences with profoundly abusive or toxic or deeply harmful family of origin shaping experiences, they'll still say like, "Oh, why are, are you? No, no, they were, they were, no, they were good parents. No, this, this is fine." Mm-hmm. And I have to immediately sort of, kind of come around through the service entrance by saying like, "Yeah, no, 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 no I'm just asking you to tell the truth. I'm not." trying to provide shaping judgment. I'm not attempting to like lay you on this couch and just tell you your dad never loved you. Like, I'm just really not interested in that. What I'm interested in having you do is just telling the truth about what it was like for you to grow up with these people.
2: Yeah. And I'm trying to remember the, I'm trying to remember the phrase, I'm trying to remember the phrase you used to describe this where, where um, the the way that it's set up is that uh, parents have kids and, and the job of the parent is to offer them love unconditionally and give them the message you can trust me yeah to, pr- to provide for you to protect you right uh, but what happens is that gets flipped right so that parents who never got that from their parents uh, uh, seek to extract love from their kids right and I forget the phrase you use to describe that but your entitlement it. destructive entitlement and so I wonder if this reflex of protecting our parents, is part of this agreement we've made to to give our parents the love that they didn't give, right, that's destructive, and it's their entitlement versus this, the way that parents, I think you're holding out, is like we can reparent each other by offering, this is I think how you see some of the therapy work you do, is offering this love and trustworthiness as a surrogate so that we can stop this destructive entitlement uh, chain reaction. Yeah? Yes,
4: yeah, no, and, and so it's, you're, you're really, thanks for close reading that. Um, and so for, for us, I think that's that's the the seedbed of then asking lots of more interesting questions about like, well, you know, is God destructively entitled to us? At least in the God of the theological enterprises most of us have grown up
2: in. Yeah, and that's the uh, God desires to make his name great and to bring him glory and to make him famous, et cetera, et cetera, as though God is this anxious, uh, fragile creature that needs the creatures he's created to give him love and to, to make sure everybody else knows that he's trustworthy versus mm. him giving that to us.
4: Exactly. And so, you know, when the, the Israelites and the Hebrews were outlawed from participating in child sacrifice, I like to take that part of the Bible seriously. And so for us, when we then continue to engage in that by saying that, you know, like, this is just worth it because this is what it means to worship this God. This is what it means to serve this God. This is what it means to believe in this God is to constantly make yourself miserable for his glory. <laughs> yeah, and, and for us that, that like as therapists, like, again, like if that's the kind of narrative someone comes in and brings in about their family, it's like, Oh, it's my job in my family to be miserable for the sake of my family. When uh, in the '50s, when a lot of the fathers and mothers of the family therapy movement I come out of would they they begin treating uh, schizophrenic patients, and so one of the first things that they began asking questions of is they would notice that when schizophrenic patients would have their parents or family members come and greet them, the interactions were. Were always this kind of like give and take that's difficult to discern where it might be like if the schizophrenic patient is exhibiting some coldness that a family member might say something like, oh, you don't you don't care about us. You don't you don't love us. And then the schizophrenic would come and they would they would try to hug mom or dad or whoever was saying this. And immediately that parent would sort of recoil or pull back. And so then the, the, the kid would sort of pull back and then say, oh, you don't you don't, you don't want to give us a hug. And so it's this constant sort of passive and active communication that doesn't equal up. Like it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And so it would drive people literally crazy. And so they began asking these questions. And again, there's a, there's a biological component to schizophrenia. It's a very multifaceted and difficult disease to figure out. But some of these people began treating schizophrenics by doing couples therapy with their parents, <laughs> which was so, again, so transgressive. And right. you cannot get health insurance billing for that. No,
2: you can't.
4: <laughs> but... But the interesting component is that they experienced a lot of wholesale family success when they stopped identifying this one singular patient as the identified problem in the family because essentially what their argument was is that you're becoming the problem for the sake of all of these other people. And they don't want to be doing that. They would prefer to be having a different experience, but this system creates this homeostasis, this norm that then mandates that we have these roles that we participate in, even if we don't like them.
2: Yes. So we do them anyway.
4: And so for us, you know, like how many, how many of us can then say, you know, it was like this growing up in church where it was, we were told, oh, like, why do we have to feel miserable for this God? And they're like, no, this God loves you. What do you mean? This God cares about your well-being. This God knows every hair on your head. This God loves you more than any other thing in the world and will kill you forever if you forget it you know, and and you're saying oh that that sounds a little scary it woke me up in the middle of the night as a kid and I'd ask my parents about these sorts of things and they'd be like why are you so worried you know god loves and cares about what happens to you Eric. it's not a big deal but we'll murder you forever if you get any of this wrong yeah you know and so for yeah. us it's that kind of chaotic or non-aligned communication that does so much damage to so many of us yeah i
2: don't know if you've seen that meme but it's jesus knocking on a door and he says let me in and there's a bubble inside the door says why. And Jesus says, so I can save you. And the bubble says, from what? And it says, from what I'll do to you, if you don't let me in.
4: I, <laughs> I always love that one. People send that to me with regularity, because I'm so passionate about this kind of conversation. So no, I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love that one,
2: actually. So so what you're pointing out is that um, you're, you're taking what we've learned maybe in um, the therapeutic realm about how systems work and how we have identified patients, who become the person on whom we put all of the system's sins, you know, the schizophrenic is the problem, so yeah. that then, then we can treat them and not have to deal with the system. Uh, and you're also pointing out that the same thing happens uh, maybe in our world order, our, our neoliberal finance-driven capitalistic world order, where the system creates scapegoats, if you will, to put yeah. religious language on it, or identified patients, so the poor, right, the lazy, uh, whomever else. Uh, and also we're doing the same thing in the religious arena. So we have these three systems that are exhibiting similar symptoms and they're reinforcing and maybe revealing the ways that all these systems have become diseased and need uh, like restoration, like this, this therapy that you're talking about. And so this is a gift, I think, of this book for, for me and for our listeners is that, Eric, a lot of people are going through what they call deconstruction and and they 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 hear about this god you keep naming and there's nobody speaking truth about it. There's nobody actually saying, hey this emperor has this God has no clothes <laughs> um, And your book does that and it says what's wrong with the church is actually what's wrong with our world and and so we come by this honestly and we can also walk into healing honestly, wide-eyed, um, authentically. Um, and so it's a, it's a gift for not only those to name like this is pain. And this act, this actually pain, pain feels like pain, but then there's also a way forward to heal from it. And so I just, I want to just commend it to our listeners and also thank you for writing it. Oh,
4: I mean, well, thanks so much. Uh, And I was telling a friend this recently that it is a a, a lonely prospect to uh, write a book that talks about capitalism in America. Oh, and, uh, evangelicalism and, uh, your own kind of mental health struggles being mine and, uh, your family and, and so many other things. And to it, it's, I, I imagine it to like playing a show as, cause I'm not a famous person. So I'm like playing a show at a dive bar and there's like four people in the crowd and one of them is just really into it. And you're like, Hey, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. I can do this again. Uh, and, and so, you know, like that, that for me, it is a gift, uh, for me mm. when people read the book. And their first thought is to hang in there and to try yeah. to figure out what's going on yeah. and then to treat it with kindness and generosity. Because now having written a book, again, during the end of the world, my first response is anytime I see a book now that has been written about the same timeline as, I just want to go up to that person and say, you, you did it, buddy. Yeah, I can't believe you did that right now. I don't know how you did it. And I'm not, I don't care what this book is about. I mean, as long as there's not Nazis in it, I think, you know, if if that one, maybe you shouldn't have written it, but everybody else, (laughs) like you did something really amazing during a time that sucked. And so uh, like, you should celebrate that. And I feel like for all of us, like that's the message I want right now. It's like, I don't care. Like if you're deconstructing, if you're conservative, if you're progressive, first of all, get the hell off of your phone. But secondly, (laughs) like can you just like celebrate some things that you are doing right now? Because it's really, really just so hard to be a person right now. Yeah. And so if like, we could just have people just say like, I cannot believe that you're doing the thing that you are doing. And that's so much of what I want to say to teenagers and kids right now. I have a Mm -hmm. seven-year-old. And so when they go to school and they've, my son has only gone to school in a mask and then he got to take a mask off at the end of the year, this last year. And that was his first time ever going to elementary school without a mask on.
0: Hmm.
4: And, uh, you know, some people have never been to elementary school before because of this whole thing. Some people have been homeschooled forever and will continue to be that way because of lots of factors that shape that. Uh, And, you know, for all of us, these kids especially, and then we're seeing all these articles in the New York Times about like, oh, you know, what's going on with the adolescent mental health crisis? And I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. I understand that there are pervasive problems that I spend time with every day. But the truth is, is that I would like so much of that to just be acknowledged as like, I cannot believe kids in America are getting out of bed anymore. Yeah. Like, I cannot believe that they're still going to school. They're still learning to play the piano. They're still playing soccer. They're still hanging out with friends. They're still wanting to believe that the world could be better. They're still, like, watching weird TikTok videos and learning new dances and baking bread and, you know, sometimes diagnosing themselves with ADHD, which I don't recommend. No. Um, you know, like, these kinds of th- – they're still doing things. And we have to start with, I cannot believe that you are doing this.
2: yeah. Yeah, as you say that, as you share that, Eric, uh, I'm reminded of how you get to the end about how, how God uh, reparents us, how, how the God revealed in Jesus reparents us, and how uh, the, 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 the direction needs to be reversed from, I need you to believe in me, God speaking, to, hey, guess what? Uh, even, even those of you who are doubting up here, I trust you,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I give you all the authority. And so God believing in us, uh, energizing us with His power and His presence, His goodness, His love. Uh, I, I hear that in what you're saying here. That um, that w- that the message troubled teens. One of the messages they need isn't do better, try harder to fix, shape up. But it's I can't believe you actually got out of bed this morning, and that you're productive. That you wrote a you know you wrote a stinking book or you baked some bread. And that's that's the love that's reversing this flow, right? that you're talking about. And um, it's just a precious gift for us. Um, as we as we wind down, man, what what are you working on now? I mean, now that you're in the uh, market economy, you got a book out, this oh, book may yeah. this book may ruin your goal of not having a brand, Eric. So get ready, oh, I, be prepared. I,
4: I don't I don't have any fears of that happening,
2: Matt. <laughs> <Okay>. um, not <laughs> at all. What's next for you? What are you working on?
4: Oh, I, I hope to delete all of my social media apps soon. Um, no, but I mean, but seriously, I am actually working on that. I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, yeah. So no, for me, uh, most days it's uh, my wife and I run our practice and that's all encompassing. Uh, the end of the world is kind of a boom town for mental health care. It is. And so, yeah, it's, it's difficult to balance what, we, we need to be offering people and how we do that best and ethically and effectively. And so that's, that's a full-time job in and it of itself. Uh, I have a seven-year-old that I like to talk to uh, a lot about so many things because he's way more interesting than I am. And uh, that takes up a great portion of my time myself. And so at this point, you know, people ask me like, you know, what's the next thing. And for me, the last shred of dignity I have left in this market economy is to say, I don't care. You know, like I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the next thing is because this thing that I wrote and these people that care about me and these things that sometimes get to happen to me, where I get to have really fun conversations with people like you, hmm. oh, like it's just a gift. And I'd like to just do that. Hmm. And then if the next thing comes, it will. And if it doesn't, this is enough.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you, what you just said reminds me of the quote you have in your book from Audrey Lord. Maybe we can give her the last word. She says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is a self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare.
4: I get teary every time I hear it. Yeah, It's
2: just amazing. It's just amazing. And I think uh, your book is Permission. It sees us. And it gives us vision. Not to just, not to just, um, it, it names why do we have pain? What is it for? And what do we do about it? And I think that we need fathers and mothers that are dealing and facing their own pain, who get hugged at Trader Joe's or wherever else, and they finally open up to the beauty of their pain, and then can help walk us step by step through it, Eric. And you're one of those fathers. So thank you for the book, and thank you for your time with us. It was great to have you today.
4: Oh, man, that was a gift. I really appreciate it.
2: Are you happy? Are you happy that I got to share Eric with you? It was worth it, wasn't it?
3: It was worth it. He, uh, it's, yeah, it was so worth it. So I'm, I'm glad that you did. I'm sure Eric is too. He spent all that time on the interview, yeah. probably intending and hoping that it would actually be published.
2: <laughs> I, I feel like in that I'm interview, sure I got more excited about his book than he was. I, 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 geeked out a little bit and I've only done that on a few times Chris, remember that one interview where after we got done, I told you I was really nervous and you're like, yeah, something wasn't right.
1: <laughs> we weren't there to witness it this time. No, this
2: time I just, uh, I was geeking out and I was getting so excited anyway. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, one of the things that, that helped me from this book is that um, I don't take seriously enough the spiritual repercussions of how we order our society.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: the ways in which uh, the logic and the common sense that runs our world, I don't think I've sufficiently interrogated yeah. uh, as a Christian. Um, and p- part of this, I think I come by honestly, right? I think I just assume yeah. that this is the best place to be a Christian uh, in the U.S. But uh, Eric, Eric's book, I think, really helps name specifically Questions I need to be asking theologically, but also uh, culturally, things I need to take more of a healthy distance from, or skepticism as a Christian. Yeah. So I just I'm so thankful for that yeah. book.
3: Yeah, I I've been uh, reflecting on this. Like this, it's not just in the Christian world too. Like I was thinking about the whole, as you were talking about that, Matt, the whole self help kind of uh, industry, the, the kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yeah. you know take some deep breaths to feel better. And I'm not, you know, there's there's some goodness in all of that, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But I I think that there can be a, an obscuring in the way that we think about what it means to be faithful as a Christian, but also just as we think about what it means to be, like, healthy and, you know, mentally stable mm-hmm. um, and emotionally, you know. Like, there there is this assumption, I think, this individualistic assumption that we all have, that it's like the this is all up to me. If I feel bad, if I'm anxious or depressed, that it's a problem that lies within me Mm -hmm. and that I can do something about it by like changing, you know, just, uh, you know, maybe taking different meds or um, changing my morning routine or, and, you know, again, nothing against meds or good morning routines, but I think when we load everything up and we don't interrogate the system that's producing this anxiety, uh, we're not, seeing the full picture. Exactly. Not seeing the full
2: picture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is like taking, uh, and you know, Bowen family systems theory and applying it to the United States. And, right. and it's it's basically yeah. a family system. And uh, if you see dis, dis-ease or dysregulation yeah. in the people in the system, um, what we learn is that sometimes it's caused by the system. And yeah. if you take those people out of the system, they function differently. And I think... Yep. Um, that's the brilliance of this book, is the theology, the culture, and the psychology together, once again, holding hands, skipping through the fields, the golden <laughs> fields, the poppies. Um, yeah, you know what? Yeah. We've been on this. Um, this is the first guest we've had in months. And so... Um, right, right.
3: Uh, uh, so we haven't been doing these little reflections after the
1: episode. No. We've been our own guests. Yeah.
3: have yeah. been our own guests.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm my own best friend, and I've (laughs) I've been saving up some uh, things to share with you that I tend to only share during conclusions. Mm. Did I I think I know what these might be? Oh dear! Uh, Yeah, (laughs) did I tell you about the benefits of eating dried grapes? I've been telling everyone.
3: Has this been like a thing that you've been doing? Yeah, yeah. It's it's about
2: raising awareness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my
1: gosh. Mm-hmm. Every time you get me, every time I'm like <laughs> waiting, you it, you and then, then you was like coming. say it, and I even knew. Yeah.
3: yeah. You just didn't think that was the punchline. Yeah. That was right. good. That I was, was like, oh. That was pretty good delivery there. Yeah, you yeah. did I, a good I, job. I, will, I will chalk that one up to your delivery. Thanks, you guys. Um,
2: yeah. I have an, another question for you. What did the blanket say when it fell off the bed?
1: What did the blanket say when it fell off the bed? Mm-hmm. I'm on the floor. It said,
2: "Oh, sheet!" (laughs) (laughs) You see, because the sheet was staying on the bed. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Right, right. It's it's like what what they're missing? Right. Yeah. Have uh, I overheard this conversation the other day uh, between a father and a son? And uh, the question was from the kid: "Was Dad, will you explain what an eclipse is?" and the dad said no son
1: <laughs> <laughs> Happened with you too i was like no son what <laughs> <sighs> oh
2: gosh why won't he, why he explain dad
1: it. what kind of a dad is he yes <laughs> oh you guys <sighs>
2: all right well, well.
3: <clears throat> that's probably enough of that
1: yeah happy day everyone yep. happy day
3: we should yeah we should head into our um our friday Happy Friday! Although when you're hearing this, it's not a. It might be a
2: Friday. We record these on Friday, mm-hmm. so, oh, typically. Well, speaking of just one more thing. Speaking of pain, uh, I got so mad yesterday that I actually took my Bluetooth keyboard and threw it against the wall. Parts went everywhere, and that's when the shift hit the fan. just right down there I got a fan that keeps me cool and the shift key just banged into it please hit we'll see you next time everybody
3: I do have control here (laughs) I can just cut
2: this off whenever I want control I'll delete this conversation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast if you're finding it helpful
3: or enjoyable we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com join.
1: You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join.
2: Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebbe. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com.
3: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button.
1: You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.